I'm trusting that Thanksgiving Day, particularly, maybe for most of you, was a pretty good day. You got together with either family or friends or family and friends, and you had a spread. You ate some turkey. Maybe you ate some brisket. I don't know. Maybe you ate, yeah, whatever you ate. And, and you just had a great time. And, and it was a time where we gathered together and we were thankful. We, we have a lot to be thankful for because God has given us a whole lot. I mean, we have a whole lot more than most. And it's, a, it's a, such an awesome time to be thankful. But it shouldn't be the only time we're thankful. Maybe it's a time where we come together and we're, we're saying, this is a time when we are going to intentionally express our thankfulness to God for all that He's done for us in our lives. And so we take moments during our days uh, over the weekend and we just thank God for all that He's done for us. But just imagine this. Imagine that a month ago, you uh, saw some friends in town and you invited them to Thanksgiving dinner at your house. Five o'clock, you said, Thanksgiving Day. We're going to have Thanksgiving turkey at my house. And you invited three families. And they're good friends of, the, of, of your entire family. So it wasn't like a big stretch. You were putting yourself out there to invite people you really didn't know. So you have these friends. And so as, you know, weeks get closer to Thanksgiving, you were shooting out emails and, and texts to them saying, hey, don't forget, 5 o'clock, Thanks, on, on Thanksgiving Day, our house. Thanksgiving morning rolls around, and you and your family get up, and you have a leisurely breakfast together. You, you, you're kind of in your lounging clothes, your PJs, as it were, and you're kind of lounging around the house, and you're, you're watching the Thanksgiving Day parade. Maybe you're going to get set up to watch some football, and, and then football comes on, and then you decide... We should get a little something to eat for lunch. And so you make lunch, and, and the breakfast dishes are stacked up in the sink. And, and the lunch dishes, they're kind of in the sink, but they're on the table. And it's kind of spread around. And nobody's really dressed, and everybody's just kind of lounging around, enjoying the afternoon of everybody being at home together on a day. And it's just such a, a great thing. And, and you're playing games, and you're just having family time. And then all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. And you go to the door, and you open the door, and there are the three families that you invited for Thanksgiving Day. And they're dressed up, and you're in your PJs. And they're holding some, some little dishes of goodies that they've brought to enhance the meal that you said you were going to prepare for them. And they're standing at the door, and you're looking at them kind of with a bit of a quandary in your eye, and you're going like, uh, so, hey, what's going on? And they said, it's Thanksgiving, it's Thursday, remember? You told us to come at 5 o'clock for dinner, remember? And all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, I kind of vaguely remember, remember doing that. But hey, you know what? I'm sorry, but we're just not prepared to have you. We didn't cook a turkey and we didn't do any mashed potatoes. We've just kind of been lounging around. So you know what? My bad, but hey, can we try it in a month around Christmas? Maybe you guys could all come back and come back on that day and we'll throw a big party, okay? But hey, you know what? Sorry, just uh, nothing going on. And they're standing there kind of wondering what just happened. And you shut the door in their face. They turn around, they walk off, and your wife comes up because 
when the doorbell rang and she was in her PJs, guess what she did? She jumped behind the couch. The kids went scurrying off because they're not prepared to meet anybody either. And she says, what was that all about? And you kind of sheepishly say, well, I guess about a month ago, I invited all of them over here for Thanksgiving dinner. And I kind of forgot to tell you, so I just said, you know what, we're not prepared for you, so you should just go on your way. I don't know what it would be like in your home, but winter would arrive inside. (laughs) Things would get cold. They would get chilly in a hurry. And then it might get really hot, too, all in a heartbeat. And I know that my wife would be really embarrassed. She would be ashamed of what just transpired. Because here's the thing about Thanksgiving, about Christmas. Here's the thing about birthdays and anniversaries. Here's the thing about Easter. All those dates are on the calendar, and they are going to come, and the day will be there, and then it's gone. And so whether you're ready or not for that day, it's still going to arrive. Regardless of how you look, regardless of what you've done, regardless of your interaction with all of that. And so we have all these things in life, and they come and go in our life, and they're going to come, and it's going to be a fact, and whether we're ready for it or not. Now, here's, here's the deal on some of this stuff. Some of these things we just don't even care about. They come, we know they're coming, and we're like, ah, who cares? It's just another event. It's just another thing we have to go to. It's another place we have to put ourselves out. So who cares? We don't go. We don't show up. And people say, hey, where were you? And they go, none of your business. I just didn't want to come. Okay, so back off, Jack. And they're going like, whoa. Chill out, baby. Come on. Just ask a simple question. And that's, that's kind of what life looks like for us. And you know, that is, is the reality of life is that things are going to come and go and it's all going to happen whether we're ready or not. And really what we're wanting to have happen is that we want to be ready. And this morning, what we're looking at, uh, what John's writing about, is about us taking heed to be ready for the biggest event, or maybe the second biggest event of mankind. You know, in all of our activities, the question we have to ask ourselves, are we preparing ourselves for the second advent. We're getting ready to celebrate the first advent, which is the birth of Jesus. But the second advent, the second coming of Jesus, Jesus is coming again. Newsflash, in case you haven't read your Bibles, you've never heard this before in church, Jesus is going to make a physical appearance here on earth again, one day. Here's, here's, that's, the, that's the good news. The bad news is, He hasn't given us a text and saying, hey, it's going to be on December 25th again. It really wasn't that way on the first time anyway. But he is coming back. It's inevitable. It is an event that's going to take place. And so when we take a look at what John says to us in 1 John, um, he wants us to get that idea into our mind. He wants the church to be aware of it. Because there are some things that he wants us to do. So what we're going to do is we're going to read the verses we're going to be studying this morning. Then we'll come back and we're going to talk about them a little bit. And so here are the verses, verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 
If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, these are um, kind of hinge verses, transitional verses. Because what John's doing is he's getting ready to move from uh, one of his favorite thoughts and themes and topics that he likes to really press in on, and that's abiding in Christ, being in Christ. He really loves that topic. And if you don't think that that's true, just go back to the Gospel of John, which he wrote, and look at chapter 15, because it's all about abiding in Christ. It's about being the, him being the, the vine and us being the branch and us being connected, abiding in Christ. He wrote a whole chapter. It's a marvelous chapter. Read it. Your hearts will be stirred by it. But here John's making this change now. He's, he's got this whole abide in Christ thought going on and, and in the verses prior to this, and he's getting ready to make a shift into a new theme, a new idea further on and that'll take us through the rest of the book. And that new idea, that new theme, that new thing he's talking about is the, the sonship or daughtership of being in Christ. And it's, and it's been brought to us through salvation in Jesus. We've got this inheritance. We are now adopted into the family of God. That's one of his other favorite topics he loves to just talk about. And so these are kind of those transition verses. And that's why we see, and now. He's talked about a bunch of stuff. And then he goes, and now we're moving on. And he calls them little children. Now I want you to understand that when he says little children, it's not a derogatory term that he's using with the, with the church. He's not saying, you immature little brats. What he is saying is, my little children, the ones that I love so dearly, I love you deeply. He is, he's old. Remember that? He's really old. I don't think we have anybody in the building today that's as old as John is when he writes this, because he's in his late 80s, maybe early 90s, when he writes this. And he's writing to the church. He's been their pastor. He's been their spiritual mentor. He's been their spiritual leader. He's been their spiritual father. And so when he calls them children, little children, he's going like, man, I love you as though, as though you were my own little children, and I love you dearly. And so their hearts are already warmed, and they're going like, man, John loves us so much. Look at the wording he uses with us. And then he goes on to this theme. It's the basic theme that he loves, abiding in Christ. And then he's going to move into this other relationship of son and daughter because of what Jesus has done for us. But what he says now right here in this verse is, is that as we abide in Christ, but when he appears, we'll have this confidence. And here's what it looks like. We've been given the status of children of God through Jesus. I mean, I don't know where you stand, what your thought process is, or where you think or who you think you are. But if you don't really have a good grasp on who you are, let me tell you who you are. You're a dearly beloved son or daughter of God, the creator of the whole universe. The one that put the stars in place, the one that named every star. The one who put the sun in its place and made all the planets to orbit around the sun. The one that created this great magnificent land that we get to live in. The air that we breathe. The, the, the um, game that we see and hunt. The fish. Everything that we have before us is because of him. And he's turned around. And he has called you by name. 
And your name is daughter. Your name is son of the most high God. And if there is nothing else that you ever walk away from church, you need to know this. You need to know this every day that you get up out of bed, every day that you take breath, you need to say, thank you, Father, I'm your son, I'm your daughter. And then you say, this is the day you've made for me. I'm going to rejoice in it. And that's, that's who we are because we've been given this status uh, to God through Christ. We have this unbelievable fellowship with him. And, and it's the fellowship that God meant for us to have from the beginning with Adam and Eve. And the way that we maintain this fellowship with the Father is by abiding in Christ, staying alive in Christ. Because as we abide in Christ, that allows us to enjoy genuine confidence that when we meet Jesus face to face, we will not be embarrassed. We'll be confident of who we are because we are children of God. And that all comes as the Holy Spirit works in our lives, teaches us, and transforms us from who we are into more of who He wants us to be. That's, that's His whole process. So when our lives are properly related to God and revealed to others, then God Himself is revealed in our lives to others. Do you get that? As you reveal, let, let God reveal Himself to you, and you hang around with the others, remember well, Jesus said the greatest two commandments, love God, love people. As you love God more, and God becomes preeminent in your life, and he becomes evident to others in your life, you spend your life with other people, they see the manifest presence of God pouring out of your life. That's how we know we're children of God. That's how we know to whom we belong to. Now, Part of the thing is, is that we're, we're motivated by different aspects of life. You know, um, back in the old days when I was just a wee little kid, like seven or eight, my mom and dad dragged us to this uh, evangelist that was speaking. He's a traveling evangelist. And some of you probably may even know him. His name is Jack Van Empey. I'm telling you, that guy could bring the flames of hell right under your seat where you sat. When he preached, it was cold outside, but it was burning up inside. And I'm telling you, that guy, he could scare the hell out of you and Jesus into you. That was his motivation, was that you don't want to go to hell because you're just going to burn and it's going to be lonely and it's going to be ugly. And he, brought, he, was, he was absolutely a master at using, uh, being a wordsmith to paint these Word pictures of what hell was going to be like and why you didn't want to be there. And I think that 99% of the people that came to Christ did it because they were scared to death that they were going to burn in hell. It wasn't because, hey, you know what? You have a benevolent God, a God who loves you, someone who said, I'm going to pay your price for you. That wasn't the message. And so you have, you have that kind of motivation that's going on. And... And what John does here, he moves this whole idea of a, the abiding theme of the previous verses, and he still wants us to remember that and to abide in Christ. But this time, he adds a new motivation to abiding in Christ. The new motivation for abiding in Christ is that we will have this confidence when he comes back to earth for the second time. 
So what's, what's motivating us to abide in Christ? The second coming. That's the end. You know, what we call the end is really what God calls the beginning. And our lives are going to change. It's going to be absolutely phenomenal. Now, if you have the thought, I'm just taking a little rabbit trail here. If, if you have the thought that when you die and you go to heaven, it's like going to church and whoever would want to be in a place like that for eternity, you are mistaken because that is not what heaven's going to be like because you don't just sit around and look at Jesus all day. Jesus says, hey, all right, you guys over there put these blue flags on. You guys over here put the red flags on. I'm going to be the referee. We're going to play a little flag football today. And we're going like, this is heaven? Really? Well, is it fun? Yeah. Okay. Let's go. Then there's some of you that are going like, well, I'm, I'm on the softer side. And so you get your palette out and your paints, and you start to paint. And you paint these magnificent scenes of nature that God has laid out before you. And you look at it, and you're going, man, it's like I just took a picture with my camera, and it's on the canvas. Do you know why that is? Because you're perfect now. You don't make mistakes when you paint. It's absolutely phenomenal. And you're going like, oh, man, how much money could I have made on earth when I was painting this, you know? <laughs> I, I, I do have to say this. If you can't, if you can't paint art, like an artist here now, it ain't going to happen in heaven either. I'm just telling you, I know that. I can hardly even draw a stick, man. But I can do other things. So we have this, this new motivation. It's that Christ is coming back for us. And you know, that's one of the truths that we in this church hang our hat on. There's four of them. The first one is, and let me say this, all four of these truths hinge on the fact and the idea and the reality that it's all about Jesus. So if it's not about Jesus, then it doesn't matter what else we do. It doesn't count for anything. So it's all about Jesus. Keep that in mind as I go through these four truths that we at this church hang our hat on. First of all, our first thing we hang our hat on is that Jesus is our Savior. Nobody else can save us. There's no other path to God. There are not many paths to God in heaven. There's no other way to heaven except through Christ. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man or woman comes to the Father except through me. So we go, all right. So the first thing we hang our hat on is that Jesus is our Savior and the only Savior for the world. Without Jesus, it is an eternity uh, uh, where you are absolutely alienated from the presence of God. And that's hell. That's the first thing we hang our hat on, is that Jesus is our Savior. The second thing that we hang our hat on with Jesus is He is our sanctifier. What does that mean? That means that He takes us from where we're at right now, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, and Jesus is going to say, I don't want you to say, I love you right where you are, but I refuse to leave you where you're at I want you down there. And we go like, all right, I'll go with you. And so Jesus starts to walk with us. He teaches us. He shows us stuff about ourselves, things that we need to change, attitudes, actions, behaviors. And he's going, this, if you want to look more like me, and that's the goal, is to look more like Christ, here is the process that we're going to go through. And it's called sanctification. 
He's our Savior. He's our sanctifier. The, the, the third thing that we do, we've been talking a lot about this, and it's been going on in our church a lot, is that he is our healer. And that's why we have this oil sitting right here, up here on this table every Sunday. It, there's nothing magical about this oil. I will tell you one thing. If you've never smelt this oil, you need to come and smell it. It smells really good because it's frankincense and myrrh. I think that's what they embalmed dead people with in the old days. But it smells really good. If it covers up death, it must smell good. There's nothing magical about the oil. There's nothing magical about it at all. It's it's what Jesus promised he would do. By his stripes we are healed. And in James it says, if you want to be healed, confess your sin one to another. And then have the elders anoint you with oil so that you will be healed. It's the prayer of a a righteous man that availeth much, the Bible tells us. It's not the oil. It's not the individual. It's not. That's why it says call the elders, plural, because when the elders lay their hands on you and they pray for you and the Holy Spirit does something, we don't know which one of the elders God worked through. And maybe it wasn't the elders at all. Maybe it was you yourself as you prayed for yourself. But you're healed and God gets all the glory, not a man. Now, if you haven't been in church for a while, I'm going to tell you, we have had, we've had people healed. We've had people with, with knees that needed healing, and they came, and they were anointed with oil, and they were prayed for. And they came back and said, my knee is completely healed. We have had people who have had back problems get anointed with oil and prayed for, and their back problem has gone away. My wife had an eye problem, and she thought it was going to mess up our vacation time, and we prayed for her right here because she was at home and couldn't be here, and we prayed for her, and guess what happened? She was healed. We have had people with hearing problems healed. We have people who have had cancer go into remission because they came and asked Jesus to do a favor for them. We hang our hat on the fact that Jesus is our healer. But he doesn't just, it's not just physical healing. And if we get caught up in the fact that it's just physical healing, we're going to miss the full counsel, the full fullness of God in our lives because he wants to heal our emotions. He wants to heal us mentally. He wa- and most importantly, he wants to hear us, heal us spiritually. We get it all. We don't just get a piece of the pie. We get the whole pie. It's amazing what God will do. And so that's what we hang our hat on. And then the third one, or the fourth one, is that Jesus is our coming king. In other words, we know because what Scripture tells us that one day when when Jesus sitting at the right hand of his father and his dad taps him on the back, he's going to look at his dad and his dad's going to say, it's time, go get him. And he's going to come. And he's going to grab every single person who has ever put their faith in him. And the Bible tells us in Revelation, and I might be jumping ahead here a little bit. Sorry about that, Jesse. We'll get back to that verse. But in Revelation, it says that every eye will see Jesus. When he comes, every eye on the planet will see Jesus arriving. It's not going to be just for the people who love Jesus. It's not going to be clouded in mystery. It's going to be clear. It's going to be bright. It's going to be glorious what he does. Here's what it is. Is that Jesus, 
without Jesus, there is no salvation. And mankind is doomed to an eternity that is completely absent of the presence of God. And because of Jesus, we grow spiritually. As we abide in him and in his word, the Holy Spirit then has operating room to come and work in our lives and to produce the, the character of Jesus in us. And then as we have the character of and conduct and communication of Jesus in us, we also believe that he has provided for our physical, emotional, and mental healing along with spiritual healing. And because Jesus came to earth to live among us and die for us and pay our penalty for sin, he also promised that at the right time he would return for all those who put their faith in him for the forgiveness of sin. And the reason we know that is because he told us so. He said it in John chapter 14. He's talking to his disciples and his disciples are getting a little bit sad because all of a sudden they realize that what Jesus is telling them is absolutely true. That in a few short hours, he's going to give his life up. He's going to die. He's going to pay the penalty of sin that nothing or anyone could ever do and then he would go to be with his Father in heaven. And they were sad because they loved being in the presence of Jesus. And so Jesus in John chapter 14 said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to, my, take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Man, you better put that one on the doorpost of your house. Because that's the one you want to read when you're walking off to work every day. You know that this isn't your home. This is not your final resting place. God has something much better for you. And in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said this, You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Hmm. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but really, as, as we think about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us, where he has gone, and that he's coming back, it should ignite a thought pattern within us every day. Is this the day? Is today the day? Is he coming today? You need to be annoying to the Father in heaven like little kids are in the car. Are we there yet? We haven't even started the car to pull out of the driveway. Of course we're not there yet. And then every five minutes after that for the next eight hours. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And that's when you break out the Benadryl and give everybody a shot of it. And then you wake them up when you're there. What John's letter is saying, he's saying it to the church, that the motivation for abiding in Christ is that we'll have this confidence in our relationship with Jesus so that when he appears, we have prepared ourselves to meet him. That's really the crux behind this thing that we're studying this morning. The incentive for abiding in Christ is his return. He's coming back. And, And I don't know what you want to be looking like or where you want to be or what you want your life to look like. But that is the place where I, you know, I want to have the incentive to be prepared 
to meet Jesus face to face so that my life, when I stand before Jesus, I'm going like, I can stand here in full confidence because I know what you have done in me. I know where my feet have gone. I know what my eyes have looked at. I know what my ears have been listening to. I know the speech that has come out of my mouth. I'm not embarrassed by any of it. I have confidence in you because your good work was done in me. And, and you know, here's the, here's the other part of it. In the field of economics and, and uh, sociology, there are at least four different classes of incentives. Listen to them. Here's four of them. There might be more. Financial incentive. That involves the expectation of some financial gain. You might get it at your work. If you do A and B and C, here is your bonus that you're going to get if you complete those three tasks. So guess what? We're motivated by getting the bonus to do these tasks so that we have a little extra cash in our pockets. That's the final that financial incentive. And then there's the moral incentive. In other words, morally, we want to behave. We want to do the right things. We don't want to look at pornography. We don't want to go and, and step into sinful situations where we are going to be, where someone from the church or somewhere else could catch us to where we're actually going like, this is really embarrassing. And so morally, personally, we're like, the incentive is to, to give at least the perception to other people that I'm a good guy. We want the community to go like, hey, you know that, that Ken Simon guy? He's a good guy, isn't he? And they go, yeah, maybe we should ask his wife. And she would say, yeah, he's a good guy. That's because there's the incentive morally for me to have community approval. There's the coercive incentives. These are the incentives that we don't necessarily have to deal with, but a lot of people around the world do, especially if they're Christians, that you will respond and do what you're going to do because we're going to coerce you to do it because you might endure physical pain. And if that doesn't motivate you, then we're going to march your family in here and threaten to do something to your family, and hopefully that will motivate you to do the things we want you to do. And then the fourth one, um, let's see, I've got to find my spot here, is the natural incentives. And those are the things such as, as fear, as pain, as anger, or joy. I mean, there's a list of them. And they're the natural things that come along because we're, we have incentive to do something because we want to avoid the pain of something or we don't want to receive the anger from somebody else. And so there's a natural incentive to do something. But what John is saying here is that our incentive is the second coming of Christ. Therefore, our behavior, our conduct, the things that we do should reflect who Jesus is in our life and that we want to be ready for the physical coming of Christ at any moment, because it could. Here's the interesting thing when we talk about appearing, the word in the, in the Bible, when it says appear, and, it, and it's in reference to God, it's only in reference to Jesus. There's never a reference to God the Father in appearing, and there's never a reference to the Holy Spirit in appearing like what Jesus has. The Holy Spirit has been given to us, but it's not an appearance, it's a gift, a promise from the Father. And, and so Jesus, when he comes, 
His second time, well, the first time he came, he came as a baby in the manger. The second time, he's coming as the king of kings and lord of lords. The first time he came, as was the, it was signaled by a star in the east. The second coming, he will be the bright and morning star. The first um, coming, he came riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. The second coming, he's riding on a white stallion. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but let me tell you what it means in biblical literature, Old Testament, New Testament literature. And and it's not just with the Bible. It's extra um, curricular Bible literature. When, When a king rides into the city on a donkey, it signals to the people that the king has come in peace. I mean, really, how intimidating is a donkey? That'll do, donkey. Not really, you know, that big, you're like, wow. But I am telling you right now, when Jesus comes back, when Jesus came, he came to go on the cross. When Jesus comes back, he's going to have the sword in his hand. Because he is going to come and he is going to conquer death, Sin, all those things he's already conquered, he's going to finally put it all to rest. Everything's going to be laid bare. He is going to come as the conquering king. That's why he's riding a white horse. And he, is, and he means business, by the way. And so we should be cheering that. We should be going like, oh, man, this is going to be great. And here's the, you might be thinking you're going to be on the sidelines watching all this take place on the big stage, uh, world stage, the arena of the world. Jesus is going to put a little sword in your hand. He's going to say, hey, Bilbo, come along. You got your little dagger? Let's go do some work. And in your little hobbit feet, you're going to run out there, and you are just going to slay those nasty old creatures, those demons, because Jesus has said so. In 1 John, he says, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears you may have confidence and not shrink back from his coming. You know, um, when it talks about his coming, John uses uh, the structure in the sentence on that word and it refers really to the arrival of a king, a ruler, or dignitary. And and it's the arriving of a monarch, someone who we all should, you know, show honor and respect to. I mean, I, I don't... When we lived in Canada, I think the Queen came to Canada one of the years that... The Queen of England, by the way, just in case you're from Norway and you were thinking the Queen of Norway. The Queen of England came to, to Canada, and they are part of the um, Commonwealth. And so the Queen's picture is actually on Canadian money, even though she lives on the other side of the pond. But when she came, I mean, people lined the streets. They wanted to get a glimpse of her. They would love nothing more than to, you know, touch the Queen, have her, you know, shake your hand or whatever the Queen does. And so they line up. 
But you, and, and yet, here we have Jesus, who is the king of queens. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He, there isn't a single, single ruler on the earth that outranks Jesus. He's got all the authority over every living ruler, every ruler that's past, dead, and the ones that are to come in the future. Jesus rules over all of them. And yet what I think has happened in the church, particularly maybe over the last 70 years, is that we have taken Jesus from being a a king, and it almost feels like we've made him the court jester. I've heard people go like, me and Jesus, he's my buddy. He's my homeboy. He's my grand dude surfer. And, and, and the, the language that they use in conjunction with who Jesus is, is mind-boggling. It blows me away. Because don't you get who he is? Now, he calls his sons... God calls us sons and daughters. We're co-heirs with Jesus. Jesus is the friend of sinners, but Jesus is still the king. Jesus is still the creator. He's still the ruler of all things. And the thing about it is, is that Jesus, all he has to do with one word is absolutely annihilate and destroy every single thing we hold near and dear to our hearts. He's not, he's called the, the Lion of Judah. But he's not a tame lion. He's not a pet. He's wild and fierce. He's ferocious. And he could rip you apart with his claws. But he's a good king. And he's a loving king. Especially to those who love him. And you know what? Here's the thing is that I think about my relationship to my dad. And I love my dad. My dad loved me. He loved all of us kids. We all loved our dad. Now, my dad would... Uh, around your birthday or on your birthday, you'd receive a birthday card from my dad. He was one of those guys that believed that when you picked up a card and it said something on the outside and then it said something on the inside, some little thing, you know, happy birthday, it's good that you're still alive, blah, blah, blah. He would just sign his, you know, love dad at the bottom. He didn't feel like he had to add to what was already said. as just love dad. But we always got the Jorge Five. He would slip a $5 bill. You're a grandson. You're, you're the firstborn son of the family. Everybody in the family got the Jorge Five on their birthday. That's what everybody referred to it. We called Grandpa Jorge, Jorge Five. We loved it to get the Jorge Five. Now, there's, there's one thing. My dad's name is George. And as, as a kid growing up, as a young man and as an adult and even now after he's gone to be with Jesus. The one thing I never referred to my dad as was the old man. I didn't do that because to my dad, that was one of the most disrespectful things that you could call your parent, your dad. You didn't call your dad the old man. You didn't call your mom the old lady. I once in a while referred to him as the rents. He had no clue what that meant, though. And here's the reason why I did that, because it was just plain old disrespectful to my dad. And the second thing is, is that I wanted my dad to know that 
when I talked to him face to face, I respected him. And when I talked about him behind his back, I respected him. And here's the other truth. The way that I talked and interact with my father is the same way that my children will talk and interact with me. And that's the truth. That same respect is what I believe we should have with God. According to John, we are going to have one or two at one of two attitudes toward Jesus when he comes back. We will either have confidence in our relationship with him, that he is our king and he has saved us and we owe everything to him, but we have that confidence because we are walking, abiding in that, or we will shrink back. Now, God's desire for us is when Jesus comes is that we have confidence, no second guessing, no wondering whether we are actually in the right place and and prepared to meet him or not, but a solid confidence based on the preparedness we have when we meet Christ. So what does it mean to have preparedness? What does it look like to be ready to meet Jesus? It means that I'm always open to hearing what the Spirit of God has to say in my life. Change that attitude. Change your, your language. Speak differently to people. Open up your heart to receive what the Spirit has so that our conduct is changed and we aren't behaving the same we did five years ago. There's a transition, a transformation that the Spirit of God wants to do in our lives. And the reason is, is because Jesus is coming back and he wants to meet his bride in all of her splendor. Let me put it to you this way. Just think about this. When a bride is preparing to get married to her lover, her groom, the man that she has said yes to, there's this period of time, sometimes it's six months, sometimes it's three months, sometimes they've been preparing their whole life for this thing called the wedding day. And they are going to make sure that everything comes together on the wedding day. That's why they have a list that's a mile long. And they show it to the groom, and he goes like, can't we just go to Vegas? And she says, no, because this is the biggest day in my life. We're going to get married. We're going to spend the rest of our lives together. So this celebration is going to come off without a hitch. Every detail will be looked after. From the flowers to what the flower girl wears. From the ring bearer. And here's what the groomsmen and the groom are going to wear. Without question. Do you understand me? Okay. Here are the streamers. Here are the decorations. These are the things we're going to eat. This is what the, we're going to be serving for drinks. These are the things that are going to happen. This is when it's going to start. And this is when it's going to end. And in this whole time, nothing is going to happen that we don't plan for it to happen. And the groom looks at his bride and says, yes, dear. (laughs) And it comes off without a hitch because they're prepared for that day to be the greatest day ever. You contrast that with I'm not saying it was me, but it could have been me. When your parents go away for a weekend, and there are three teenage, teenage boys living in the house that is not their own. And the parents leave this little list that says, before we get back, here are the things that need to be taken care of. And by the way, the house needs to be in order. And the teenage boys are going like, have a great time, see you late Sunday night. And then they start to watch TV. They invite their friends over. 
They eat lots of pizza. There's pop cans laying everywhere. Um, the dishes are piled up in the sink. There's crumbs and dirt all over the floor. And nothing has been taken care of. And what do you think those teenage boys are doing? This could have been me, but not necessarily. <laughs> they're still watching TV on Sunday evening. And they're continually doing this, looking over the shoulder to see if there are lights coming up the driveway. And do you know what happens when those lights come up the driveway? Three teenage boys jump up. One's doing the dishes, one's stuffing the trash, and the other one's on the broom. And we think that we're going to impress our parents by showing them we actually know how to do these things. Because we think our parents, well, they're old, so they forgot, and they're naive. Number two, they just don't get teenagers. We've hoodwinked them. The reality is what those parents really wanted to have happen was that when they came home, there was some soft classical music playing, and each of the boys were reading some classical book like Pilgrim's Progress or something like that, and they're sitting there with a the fire in the fireplace. The, the house is spotless, and it looks great, and the parents walk in, and they go, you prepared our house for us to come back. Thank you. I know that's a pipe dream of every parent, and it just doesn't come true. But the thing about it is we were kind of ashamed when our parents came in because the house was a disaster. Did I say we were ashamed? I meant my brothers were ashamed for their behavior. And, and we procrastinated. We put things off that we should have done. You know what? We could have had that whole thing done on Saturday and kept it really looking great all day Sunday and our parents would have walked in and they would have high-fived us. Who knows? We might have gotten a Jorge five early. But we didn't. The problem is that's exactly the way people prepare to be with Jesus. They keep looking over their shoulder and they keep wondering, is this the day he's coming because I should probably start to get my life in order somewhat so that I'm not completely embarrassed when he shows up. And that's what we want. Because when we do that, that's called right living or living rightly or righteous living. It's doing the right thing and it's doing the things right that God has called us to do. And the way that we are identified as being a child of God is because we live in righteousness. That's what John says right here in this passage. He says that when we live in righteousness, it's the evidence of God at work in our lives that we have been born again into the family of God. And, and what faith is just in Jesus is simply the, the condition that you fulfill in order for God to save you. Your salvation was initiated by God, not by you. There is not the single slightest hint of anything that smacks of good works at all in this passage or in any part of the Bible. It is, our righteousness is totally dependent upon Jesus and the work he has done for us and the work he's doing in us. And the reason we know that is because Paul wrote in to the church in Rome. He said, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. In other words, because of Adam's disobedience to God, we all inherited the sin gene in our life. And because of Jesus' obedience to God and going to the cross, our sin has been erased from our lives, and now we live in righteousness. Our practice of living right, 
The practice of right living or living righteously gives us the evidence that we've been truly born into the family of God. Paul said that to Timothy. He said, but as for you, O man, O woman of God, flee these things, sinful things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. The characteristic marks of someone who is pursuing God. These are the evidence that that we have in our lives because we are a child of God. Everyone who practices righteousness is from God and they are a part of God's family. Those who are a part of God's family behave like Jesus, meaning that they live rightly or righteously. And by the way, it's more than just doing the right thing. It's doing things right. And when we do the right thing and do things right, those who are looking for God will find God in us. We become the evidence of God at work in our lives. Why is that so important? John just told us why that's important. Because Jesus is coming back. You know, I'm, I'm, I think about this often. Who is Jesus going to say to me? I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me because I don't think about you guys. I think about myself. I'm narcissistic, egocentric. I only think about myself. But I think when I meet Jesus, is he going to say to me, you know what? I brought that person and that person and that person in your life. I made these people and those people and those people your neighbors. What did you do with the time I gave you to present Jesus to them? That's one of those questions that's asked of us that could be embarrassing. We might be ashamed of the answer that we have to give. And it's not like Jesus doesn't already know. So we want to, to come and meet him in confidence. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know he, that he is righteous, you may, sure, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. I just want to, in the last three minutes here, I just want to focus on that word if. Because that word if there. Um, isn't saying that we lack the confidence that Jesus is righteous. It would be better translated because the Greek word could be translated in two different ways. And it's sense. Sense we know that Jesus is righteous. And all those who belong to Jesus practice righteousness because we're born of him. That that's the evidence of New birth in us. We know it comes from Jesus because he's our righteousness. We, we see that. We understand it. We know it. And righteousness is the evidence of new birth, not the cause of it. 
Now, these verses this morning, they teach us the reality of the return of Jesus to this earth. And it's important for our watchfulness on his return. We should be watching for it every day. We should be saying, is today the day? The second coming of Jesus is our incentive to practice righteousness, to live rightly. Think how practical this doctrine, the second coming of Jesus is to our daily lives. If I know Jesus' coming is imminent, how should I transact my businesses today? If I know his coming could occur at any moment, what kind of a husband or father should I be? How will I conduct myself in my leisure time when I'm out hunting or fishing, when no one's watching me, when I'm at the office behind closed doors, when I'm functioning in the church and a hundred different other places? If at any moment the trump may sound announcing his appearing, how am I living? Remember, here's the thing I want you to remember. We are not on the planning committee We're on the welcome committee. Welcome, King Jesus, is our words to him. And his words back to us, enter into the joy of your master, good and faithful servants. That's when we know with confidence that we have done what Jesus has called us to do. Now, does that mean we're going to live perfectly? Does that mean we're going to... Not have any sin in our life. No, absolutely not. But that's why we keep a short account. And that's why John, at the beginning of this book, said, you know, we are to confess our sins. Because he's faithful and just to forgive us all of our sin. We just need that. keep doing that. And so as Paul told Timothy, the crown of righteousness is laid up for all those who love Jesus' appearing. Do you love Jesus' appearing? Are you living in anticipation Jesus is coming back for you. And are you ready for him to come? We should live every day loving Jesus and looking for him to come. Even if Jesus tarries in his return and we should die, we spend every day that we have looking for him until our last breath and we see him face to face. Amen? Father, we thank you today just for your goodness, your your grace to us, your mercy that you've poured out on us, the fact that you've given us opportunities to live differently, that we have this confidence that you're at work in our lives, producing in us the good fruit of Jesus' character and, and conduct and behavior, that we will be different men and women than we've ever been before. And so today, God, help us to keep one eye on the road and one eye on glory, looking for the return of Jesus, that we may uh, meet him with full confidence in our lives. Let this change the way we live our lives.